millennials and younger people are well known to trust Google and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat more than they trust their banks. You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Payment Innovation Podcast. This is your host, Chris D'Antuano with Currency Cloud. And today I'm happy to be joined by Nathan Richardson from Trade It. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Excited to talk about Trade It and payments and trends and innovation. We are as well. We're really excited to have you as what you guys are doing over there. Really valuable to the industry itself, especially with the technology background. And Nathan, I guess to start off, if you could give us and our listeners a brief background about you know, where you came from and how you came to establish Trade It and where you guys are going. Sure. So I'm one of the earliest pioneers in the, the payment space for online payments. I was at a peer-to-peer payments company called DotBank that was in head-to-head competition with PayPal as early as 1999. DotBank was doing viral peer-to-peer payments on Palm Pilot. And we were bought by Yahoo when Yahoo had plans to be forced in the auction space. I ended up staying at Yahoo and running Yahoo Finance for quite a long time and helping Yahoo Finance to cement its uh, position, a leadership position in the finance space. During that time, we launched a number of products that were way ahead of their time. At the time, we launched an international remittance product, sort of an early money transfer product that was online. We had relationships with some of the big banks like HSBC, CIBC, and we also launched one of the first PFM tools for managing your money and were an early user of screen scraping technology. I left to go run Dow Jones Online, which was MarketWatch, Barron's, Wall Street Journal, and a few other smaller properties. And I've done a few other startups along the way. One was a B2B news site called Paid Content that we sold to The Guardian, a British news company. I was in the e-commerce space. I helped to launch two businesses, Gilt Group, the men's business and the services business, Gilt Man and Gilt City. And in a return to my finance lane, I was doing some work with Bloomberg Media around the time that Mike Bloomberg was back. And I worked on some of their their media strategy and, and used that time to get myself back into the, the finance space and was with some colleagues doing spitballing ideas on areas for innovation and what was happening in trends. And trade it came to be about four years ago. So four years ago, we saw a couple of different trends. First is that many industries were adopting API strategies, but the finance space was a bit of a laggard. The second thing was that China and companies in Asia were seeing adoption of distributed capabilities for payments, banking, investing, and the U.S. was didn't even have the APIs available to do that. And three, PSD2 in Europe was already published, and we saw an opportunity to help the financial institutions in the U.S. build API strategies and at the same time create an ecosystem where they can distribute their customer journey so that their customers are engaged with them on a regular basis. Well, I appreciate that, Nathan, and appreciate the background as it's really good and useful information. I did have a a few uh, touch points, I guess, since you've gone through a number of mergers and acquisitions with Yahoo and Bloomberg. 
I'm interested to see, you know, your time there, was API technology being discussed? Was it about in development or was it a brand new language for these types of companies while you were, you know, had your time there? So it's, it's a great question, Chris. And I can say that the thing that gave Yahoo Finance the lead position in the, the space in terms of being a media destination was what I would call an early API strategy. So in around 2003, we built our own ticker plant for financial data. And we also at the same time packaged up an endpoint and packaged into a, you know, at the time, I think we might have marketed it as a widget. And we distributed it to all of our publishing partners so that they would be able to take our quote system for free and strip out the costs of the data fees they paid to the exchange providers. And that distribution of our API for quotes was the largest and most disruptive thing that we did at the time to increase the traffic and engagement on our site. And, you know, it wasn't called an API, it was called, we called it a widget at the time. So, you know, from a tech standpoint, these things have been done before, but they have been less popular. I think the, you know, there's a lot of momentum for early adopters of API strategies. I think the best research that I've seen on this is by a professor named Rahul Basoli at Georgia Tech. And I'd encourage everyone to go look at his research because it basically the case study that he uses really eloquently is um, how Amazon has used APIs in a first mover advantage way to disrupt their value chain while Walmart has had a linear value chain system that uh, held them back from uh, disrupting their their ecosystem. So I really encourage you to look at that research because it basically shows that financial institutions, e-commerce companies, companies across the you know industry that adopt API strategies that are in, a, in, a, in their first movers and they're innovative with it tend to be the ones that are able to move the fastest and grow the quickest. And then moving forward over to Traded, if you can give our listeners, you know, a brief background about Traded and the challenges that you help solve, and then we can dive into the technology itself from there. Sure. So Traded is uh, basically it's a API infrastructure ecosystem for financial institutions. We work with the top retail brokerages to take their APIs that allow us to open accounts fund accounts, let customers manage their accounts, and buy and sell stocks. We take those APIs, we put them into TradeIt's unique SDK, which takes all the APIs of all the brokers, and we distribute it to the major mobile apps or developers that where the users of those retail brokers might be. So a good example, again, not to go back to Yahoo Finance, but on the Yahoo Finance app, if you download it, one of the first things you'll see is link your brokerage account And on Yahoo Finance today, you could link your Fidelity brokerage account and manage your holdings and buy and sell stocks on Yahoo Finance. And, you know, there's a couple of things here that are really interesting is that no, not specific to any one broker, but our network, we have about 150 developers using our SDK today. And the users that are engaged on the apps like Yahoo Finance, the average account size is around $95,000. They are generally have an 80% higher retention rate with those brokerages and with those publishing sites. They generally are five times more likely to add new funds to their account than a traditional customer. 
and they are 250 times more likely to have a high net asset amount. So what we're finding is that the most valuable customers for the financial institutions we work with are also highly engaged and more engaged when you can put your product in front of your customer at their point of inspiration, like a Yahoo Finance or a place like The Motley Fool. And it's highly efficient and effective and reinforces your brand and delivers against a stronger relationship with your customer. So about you, you know, developing in early stages of, I guess, embedding this app and creating this app, where did you essentially see the biggest holes that you could fill with Traded itself? When we launched the app, it, you know, effectively two years ago, we have done some desktop integrations, but what we've found is that mobile behavior is fairly, you know, it's early days for mobile behavior and people are still fat fingered around going from app to app. And we've found that people are highly loyal to the apps that they use and apps like that, that I've mentioned are seeing, you know, we're now in under a year, we've linked over $36 billion of assets on our network, which is growing in double digits every month. So there's definitely a lot of interest in people engaging with our network. I think the other thing that is worth, you know, just the highlight that I always say to the CEOs of financial institutions, whether it's a bank or brokerage or an asset manager, I always say, you know, let me see your your phone. Generally, you have an iPhone. Now go to your battery usage and tell me what the top five apps that you're using are. And much to the horror of, of many CEOs, their own app for their company is rarely in the top 10 of battery usage. So I call it the battery usage test. And the battery usage test basically is one big neon sign screaming, get an API strategy and put your product where customers are going. I'm glad you mentioned the API route. Now, did you see gaps with the current, I guess, brokerages that didn't have this solution available? Or was this an ability for you to connect multiple different brokerages together with the API technology itself? If you could talk a bit about that. So not all brokers have API strategies today. Some of them were early adopters and having an API that was available, while others we've done a lot of education and back testing and QA testing to help them get an API that's available for for non-internal purposes. You know, I think that the, the easiest way to think about an API is that if you have a mobile app, you're likely using something that's similar to what you would need for an API if you were to, to release it. So there's a lot of education that goes on. There's a lot of hand-holding that goes on to get people to build APIs. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, just educating people around how APIs are a secure way and a way that you can control the security, the compliance, and also the the transparency that happens for your customer. We just this morning we were with a top five financial institution in the U.S. and you know there's a lot of concern about people that do screen scraping, both from a transparency and from a trust and from a uh, data security issue standpoint. And using an API is a way to solve for that because if financial institution is using an API with a trusted partner like a traded or our partners that are approved by financial institutions, the financial institution knows where the data is showing up and how it's being used and can control the access. And they can also show to their customer where their data and where their access points are. 
Whereas the old-fashioned way of doing screen scraping without the financial institution's blessing doesn't give the financial institution visibility or control or give the customer control from their financial institution to where their access might be sitting. Yeah, you touched on a really good point there that um, I'd like to talk about a bit as you go in and pitch uh, to the financial institutions. I guess, what are your biggest pushback from them? And then how do you overcome them landing uh, the contracts that you have so far? So I always say that if you're a fintech company, don't expect to get something done in a month or two or three. You need to you need to look at your ability to win contracts and relationships with financial institutions is being a six month at best to two year process. And you need to go in with that in mind when you're speaking with them and look for the right advocates. When you ask what the biggest obstacle is, generally we've learned that the earlier we include compliance and security in the conversations with our sponsors or with the people supporting our product, the better the chances are that we'll get through the approval process. So we we've learned, and this is a lesson I share openly, is you know, ask to have someone from compliance or risk involved in your earliest meetings so that you can hear their concerns and their their process for approving new vendors or partners because it will be insightful and it will also help you to build some goodwill. I agree, especially we have the same story over here. You live and learn from the earlier sales cycles and be able to capitalize on the future ones uh, from the experience. I guess uh, pivoting, essentially, as we're both servicing our clients and client as well, you know, a really important sell for us is the user experience, utilizing the APIs into the user experience. Now, in your transition to your client, you know, how do you go about pitching over the user experience, uh, I guess, scene uh, for them and really painting that picture for the flow of their user's journey? So from the financial institution standpoint, you know, we always try to understand what their goals are for their clients and what their pain points are and translate those into the SDK screens that we build. So if they want to render messages to their customers on a specific screen, we're looking at building ways that they can do that. If they have certain ways that their brand needs to be represented or, you know, they they need certain fields in a particular screen, we try to accommodate that as best we can. And being a B2B enterprise company, we also have to work with the publishers or the developers who we work with. So we we try to educate the publishers and developers who share the customer with the financial institution on what the concerns are and, you know, what is absolute from a compliance and disclosure standpoint and what's, you know, going to make the user, user journey better. And it is a bit of a negotiation between the two parties to get to where we are. And ultimately, you know, the goal is to, to give the customer the best experience. And because we're, we're somewhat of a Switzerland in the whole process, we try to make sure that we're giving people data-driven information around why design or why brand or why customer journeys are being displayed the way they might be. Yeah, I agree. And especially the more data that we get from the end clients and the experience that we have and discussions we have with our current clients are able to help our prospects out uh, in the the near future. And I guess speaking on future, 
you know, working with financial institutions, I guess the adoptions early on with fintechs was sort of a closed door. And I'm sure the experience was the same for you. And as the adoption is getting more accepted uh, with financial institutions, you know, where do you see the partnerships as they are today going in the next five to 10 years with financial institutions and API technologies like yourself? We're seeing serious adoption of, of our technology by some of the largest financial institutions in the country. So they are aware that consumer behaviors, behavior is changing and that they need to reach their customers in a place that is relevant to them. Millennials and younger people are well known to trust Google and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat more than they trust their banks. So how do you bridge that is the question. And we believe that, you know, by having an API that represents the banks or the financial institution's brand and putting that customer journey into the daily habit of one of those tech platforms is a great way to to marry, you know, where the customer is with what the financial institution's goals might be. So we think that the adoption is just going to accelerate and China is any indicator of how people consume. You know, everyone should be, every financial institution should be looking at what's happening on WeChat and, you know, building around that sort of PSD2 model for API accessibility so that they can accelerate their their reach and their engagement with their customers and quite literally post the metrics that we're seeing our financial institution partners post with their engagement by distributing their journeys through trade yeah, it's great information, and we're, we're seeing the same traction and story being translated over through the APIs and adoption as well. So, well, Nathan, to wrap up, what is the best way for our prospected listeners to get in touch with you guys over at TradeIt? You can always email me at nathan at trade.it, or you can check our website out, trade.it, or check out our blog, which has a lot of great information around these topics. Excellent. Well, Nathan, appreciate you getting on the show. Really good information for our listeners. I hope you enjoyed your time here and we will be in touch shortly as well. Awesome. Thanks. Take care. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at CurrencyCloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.